from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. So today we're going to talk about America's experience with alcohol prohibition, the 18th Amendment that passed in 1919 and where we had alcohol prohibition in this country for 13 years before it was repealed by the 21st Amendment. The person I've asked to talk to us about this is Lisa McGurr. She's a historian at Harvard. She first wrote an award-winning book on the history of the New Right called Suburban Warriors, and then she wrote a book called The War on Alcohol, subtitled Prohibition and the Rise of the American State. And I wanted to have Lisa on because for a few reasons. First, I think this book, if you're going to read one book about alcohol prohibition, its rise, its enforcement, its demise, this would be it. It's concise. It covers the field and the literature. But she also does a few other things in this book. She emphasizes the importance of alcohol prohibition in many ways with basically the evolution of American politics in the early 20th century and the rise of the American state. And she brings a special attention to the ways that prohibition was enforced in ways that not only resemble the modern drug war, but that also really played an important role in transforming American politics. So, Lisa, thanks so much for joining me on Psychoactive. Thanks so much for having me. So, Lisa, I mean, first of all, why did you write this book? Well, um, why did I write the book? I wrote the book uh, partly because I had was looking at uh, an earlier period. My first book was on the right in the post-World War II period, basically looking at the history of the conservative movement from the bottom up, 
trying to use social history to say something new about the right uh, and the conservative movement. And I felt that it had big, big payoffs to look at the right in a new way, basically trying to understand it from a grassroots perspective, from the perspective of ordinary men and women. So I started to think about an earlier iteration or moment of the when the right was pretty powerful uh, and began to delve into the 1920s. And as I did, I worked a little bit on the Sacco and Vanzetti case, an anti-immigrant uh, case, kind of a, a moment of heightened nativism. And prohibition was popping up all over the place. And it just struck me that historians had not taken a serious enough look at the repercussions of prohibition. What happened once the 18th Amendment, which was, of course, the amendment to the Constitution enacting national prohibition, what happened once it had passed? Historians have done a great job looking at the movement for national prohibition, how it came about. There was a hundred-year-old campaign for what was called temperance, for sort of, uh, you know, basically trying to tamp down on alcohol consumption. But once we got to the 18th Amendment, once it was passed, historians kind of had felt that, you know, this was a huge policy failure and there wasn't much to say. It was a great disaster. <laughs> and as we well mm-hmm. know, it was certainly somewhat disastrous, but there were huge implications that historians had not done enough to tease out. So I was really interested in looking at what happened after 1920 and 1919 1920. What was the unfolding of national prohibition? Of course, it was relatively short-lived, right? It was rescinded by 1933 with the 21st Amendment. And that was partly one of the reasons why historians didn't pay that much attention to it. But, you know, there was a lot more to say as I uncovered through looking at it from a different angle, which was not to tell kind of a national story of speakeasies and rum runners, but to look at the experience of ordinary men and women with the Prohibition Amendment and the way Prohibition was enforced um, Mm -hmm. and how it affected politics. And so by looking at the kind of from the bottom up perspective and delving into different parts of the country, I was able to tell, I think, somewhat a more consequential story of national prohibition that had been told until uh, the publication of the book. At least I hope so. <laughs> okay. No, no, I think so. I mean, because, you know, when I thought about, there's been a lot of great books about prohibition. I mean, there was the one by Daniel Okren called yep. Last Call, and I think that probably helped shape the documentary that Ken Burns did mm-hmm. about prohibition a few years ago. But your book really does break this sort of new ground in terms of emphasizing the role in the sort of rise of the American state. But just to quickly go to the period that was led up to the 18th Amendment. As you point out, there was these temperance movements in America. There were states that had prohibited alcohol in the middle of the 19th century and they repeal those things. The temperance movement begins to rise again. And some of that history is quite familiar, right? We know that, you know, that there's an element of, of Protestant churches. We know there's the progressive movement that was bringing us all these good things like child labor protection and food and drug control and antitrust laws and women's right to vote and uh, direct election of senators. So there was an active progressive movement. Alcohol prohibition gets caught up in all of that. Mm-hmm. There's also the concerns about industrialization. You know, workers have having accidents in factories, automobiles emerging, people are driving drunk and dying on the roads. All of these things are going together. But you really hone in, especially on sort of this particular marriage between progressivism, that progressive era that brought us all those good things, and also embraces alcohol prohibition, and then evangelical Protestantism. And you point, for example, with the starts of the Women's Christian Temperance Union back in the 1870s. So talk about that marriage there, mm-hmm. that, that relationship, and how 
how that distinctly marks, you know, the U.S. experience and how the how we emer- evolve from a sort of temperance movement that's really focused on alcohol moderation and not total prohibition into a full throttle prohibition movement. Right. Well, it's really interesting because it, there was this hundred year old campaign for temperance that was very much focused on individual discipline, on taking a pledge to basically discipline oneself against the addiction and the problem of alcohol, excessive alcohol consumption. By the late 19th century, with the emergence of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the Anti-Saloon League, there is a sense that individual abstinence is not going to be enough to solve the problem of the liquor uh, issue. And there's a turn toward using, you know, sort of policy, using the law at the state and local level. But with the rise of of progressivism in the early 20th century, there's a turn toward using the federal government to solve social and economic problems. And this is a a big moment in that period of constitutional activism, right? It's the moment when we get the direct election of senators, where we get the income tax amendment. It's the moment where we get four amendments within a period of less than a decade, including women's suffrage. So the turn toward constitutional activism and toward using the federal government to solve social and economic problems is one in which progressives are fundamentally aware of and interested in using to solve the alcohol problem. But it also intersects then with the absolutist crusade of these folks within the evangelical Christian movement, those within the Anti-Saloon League and the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, that are far more stringent in their approach, right? So they don't just want to get rid of or regulate alcohol, which may have been a solution progressive reformers might have embraced. They want to go full hog and basically outlaw all imbibing. And there's a relationship between those two movements and what ends up happening is that the solution proposed by those that are more along the evangelical Christian lines is the one that comes to fruition, which is a total ban on alcohol, which essentially far basically outruns many of the problems that were proposed in generating a whole new slew and set of problems in the 1920s as a result of this total absolute ban on all forms of liquor imbibing. Well, you also bring in two sort of European dimensions here, right? I mean, one is the fact that part of what accelerates dramatically uh, the progress towards the 18th Amendment and, and the banning of alcohol, it, I mean, to an extent that it goes much faster, that even that even faster than any of the advocates expect, is World War One, And that results in a kind of anti-German sentiment. It results in, you know, people being opposed to the breweries, which are German-owned. It results in a spirit of wartime self-sacrifice so that people are why waste grain on drinking when we should be giving it to the troops and for that sort of thing. But then there's another element to this, right, which is that the temperance movement is also happening in Europe and other parts of the Anglophone world in the late 19th, early 20th century. They're placing restrictions on alcohol. They're doing time and place restrictions. They're limiting hard liquor, all these sorts of things. But almost nobody except sort of, you know, Finland and Iceland are going for full alcohol prohibition. And the argument you make, as I understand it correctly, is that the reason, the key reason America, which initially is almost following in the footsteps of the Europeans, sort of leapfrogs them into total prohibition, is this evangelical Protestant dimension. That's right. You know, it's interesting because World War I is incredibly important for basically spiraling the crusade to success. Uh, and without World War I, it's possible that the Prohibition Amendment would never have passed. 
basically it's during the war that because you see all of these kind of efforts across those nations who are involved in the war to limit alcohol consumption, right? To provide food for the troops with hops and wheat, basically to, uh, you know, sort of to discipline the troops. Um, There are all sorts of partial prohibitionary measures that are passed. But the U.S., again, it's, it's exactly what you say is correct, that because of the evangelical Protestant crusaders kind of more absolutist approach, the United States does not go for a partial prohibitionary measure, rather for a total and complete ban. And of course, once the prohibition amendment is passed, the way that the enforcement legislation defines alcohol consumption as 0.5% of alcohol as an intoxicating beverage means that all alcohol, wines, beers, and distilled liquors will be banned uh, in total. And that essentially is a very, very different kind of experience than, than had happened in many, many other industrial countries that were at during wartime, passed these partial prohibitionary measures. So the U.S. Mm-hmm. ends up in a unique position for a large industrial nation and with a unique set of problems in its wake, and also with a kind of unique form of state building uh, that comes out of prohibition, which pushes the U.S. state in a direction of policing and surveillance, a state that becomes more heavy on coercion uh, than on social provisioning uh, in comparison to some other uh, European states. Well, in that context, talk a little bit about Richard Hobson. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, well, Hobson was one of the what was called fathers of prohibition. He was the highest paid lecturer for the anti-saloon league. He had been uh, uh, in, in the military, was a military figure who really sought to use the state to was sort of aggressive in using the state to solve what he saw as social and economic problems. He was a very strong anti-liquor crusader. What's fascinating about him is that uh, first he comes out with all sorts of exaggerated tropes about the problem and danger of alcohol. Uh, You know, that basically, then this is classic for the prohibition movement more broadly, that alcohol consumption is responsible for half of poverty, for insane asylums for, you know, all sorts of problems. Uh, Basically, alcohol prohibition is seen as a panacea for many prohibitionists. Richmond Hobson, what's so interesting about him is during the 1920s, he moves from the crusade against alcohol toward a crusade against other forms of narcotic drugs. And that's where I argue in my book that there's a kind of symbiotic relationship between the crusade against alcohol, and the crusade against narcotic substances more broadly, it's something that's pretty much, I think, been neglected because we have a tendency to look at alcohol prohibition very, very much as a different kind of crusade than the crusade against other narcotic drugs. But if you look at somebody like Richmond Hobson, you see the connections. It's almost a little more complicated than that, because even before, I think, he gets involved with alcohol prohibition, he has his own interaction with the prohibition of drugs and opium when the United States occupies the Philippines in right. 1898. That's right. And they have an opium control system there that's left over working pretty well for elderly opium users. And under pressure from within the U.S., right, from, you know, oftentimes religious figures, um, Bishop mm-hmm. Brent is one, and I think Hobson is another, you know, they basically get their initial taste through a, po- you know, basically 
pushing for narcotics yep. control and bans on opium imports and a more international approach, which is not so much the story with alcohol prohibition, right? It is it is in this case. So Hobson almost sort of wets his teeth on the narcotic piece, then dives into alcohol yep. and then comes back out on narcotics, it seems. So it's like. a great it's a great point to make. And I think that they, so there's you see the kind of building or the forging of a kind of incipient anti-narcotic regime in the early 20th century, particularly around opium. But until you get national prohibition, you do not see the kind of criminalization of addiction at the level you do in the in the wake of prohibition. So it's in the 1920s um, that you get really sort of the end of addiction maintenance, a far more penal approach toward users and, you know, somebody like um, Harry Anslinger, who basically says that, you know, you should lock them up and throw away the key. An approach to alcohol prohibition that he'd also sought to uh, forge, but that was less successful. But toward drug use, he was uh, far more successful in doing so. Right. I mean, Harry Anslinger is another crossover guy, right? He spends the early 1930s heading the foreign control section of the U.S. Bureau, National Bureau of Alcohol Prohibition Enforcement. And then in 19, I'm sorry, in the late 20s, and then in 1930 becomes the first head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. So he's a another person who transitions over as, and we're sort of jumping ahead of our story here, because you also get that with the Rich, Women Christian Temperance Union, when ultimately prohibition gets repealed, and they make a shift over. But I want to dive into one more point before we get actually to the years of prohibition, which is you also point out that part of the transformation that's happening in the late 20th century is this massive immigration happening into America, right? That by 1910, 15% of the American population is foreign born. In New York City, it's 40% by 1920. In Chicago, by 1922, thirds of all people living there are either foreign born or the children of foreign born parents. So there's this massive transformation with immigrants coming from from Southern and Eastern Europe, and basically the older multi-generational white folks who had come from Western and, and Northern Europe and earlier generations freaking out. And for them, the association with alcohol is huge, and particularly the saloon culture. So just elaborate upon why, in many respects, that you have this movement where the saloon culture really becomes the dominant element of the prohibition movement. At yeah, I mean, in a way, the, uh, the saloon, the problem of the saloon of the saloon is what brought progressive reformers together with those evangelicals. So progressives were largely concerned about the problems faced by poor immigrants, the ways in which, uh, you know, there was great poverty in these cities, unpaved streets, and of course, these this new institution, the saloon. There was actually a decline in the late 19th century of the use of hard liquors, but there was also a rise in beer consumption. And beer consumption was associated with the, uh, the the imbibing in the kind of all male boisterous public space of the saloon, and so saloons were ubiquitous in urban uh, immigrant ethnic neighborhoods. Um, they were also spaces where politics took place, and they were associated with big urban machines. Another issue for progressives who saw machines as extremely corrupt. Uh, and sought to tamp down on the power of machines. So shutting down the saloon was a way of basically, in their eyes, solving the problem of those men who stopped in the saloon on the way home, solving a problem for women who were faced with more abusive husbands once they arrived home from the saloon, um, and also solving the problem of the, of the nature of the saloon as a political space. So those progressives linked up with these sort of... Uh, 
evangelical Christian men and women basically uh, forming a consensus around we need to eradicate the saloon problem. Uh, and that saloon problem became the kind of force uh, that snowballed and basically helped to lead to uh, the National Prohibition Amendment. Okay, so basically, this brings us up to 1919, 1920, all these variables in play. The fact that we had passed the 16th Amendment instituting an income tax meant that the federal government was not quite so dependent upon taxes on alcohol, which I think accounted for almost 30% of the federal budget at that time. So that alleviated that. You had the whole wartime period where the federal government, as during the Civil War, plays a bigger role in American society. You had some progressive era stuff to have, making that happen as well, right? And so we get national alcohol prohibition. And initially, right, there's a huge period of optimism that this thing can actually work. All sorts of surprising people support. Even people who had opposed alcohol prohibition said, let's give it a try. You see a dramatic drop in alcohol consumption, alcohol ills in those early years, right? You know, things are looking good, but a resistance is beginning to emerge. So talk about the early elements of that. Well, I mean, you know, one has to realize in terms of the sort of optimism or feeling that one should, even somebody like Felix Frankfurt, who had posed the passage of the amendment and said, let's give it a chance, right? It was part of the Constitution. No constitutional amendment had ever been rescinded. So it certainly made sense. It was now law of the land that there would be efforts at enforcement and that there was some sense of optimism in that early uh, moment. But, you know, many places were extremely, quote unquote, wet in sentiment, especially urban big cities with lots of immigrant populations. They had no intentions of basically stopping uh, their desire for uh, what was an important part of their leisure life and cultural habits and certain elements of, of uh, you know, religious life. So basically, there was efforts to continue consumption. And there were, of course, given the desire for Americans to continue imbibing, very soon there were those who already were, had been involved in other kinds of uh, prostitution rings or gambling that saw an opportunity for an incredibly thriving possibility for a black market in alcohol trading. And as a result, of course, you know, organized criminal rings basically generated new forms of supply um, and oiled their operations with forms of corruption up and down the federal enforcement chain. So even though there was there was tremendous amounts of effort to enforce prohibition and actually optimism that this law would be enforced, right? Uh, the Prohibition Bureau was established. Customs officers were responsible for enforcing the law. The Border Patrol got involved with enforcement. And of course, at the state and local level, most states passed their own enforcement laws. And so there, you know, was some sense that this could potentially work. And that quickly, however, fell apart because of the fact that many Americans mm -hmm. still desired to continue to imbibe, and they did so. And, and prohibition generated an entire new subterranean kind of black market for alcohol. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 
When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second grade teacher, and written by my husband Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep tight stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So there's one character that I didn't know about till I read your book. Um, and just talk about his role and how he plays. It's not just that he plays a huge, I don't know if he plays a big national role, but it's his ways of thinking about it that really sort of shaped the evolution of the movement to repeal alcohol prohibition. And here I'm thinking about Anton Chernak, if I'm saying his name right, the Chicago-based politician. Explain what was significant about him. Anton Chernak was a kind of significant figure in Chicago. Um, and basically became, it was sort of a bohemian from Bohemia, an ethnic immigrant who was really uh, deeply opposed to uh, prohibition um, and mobilized essentially immigrant groups in Chicago at the local level to oppose prohibition and passing a series of uh, sort of uh, proposals uh, at, the, at the local level in Chicago against prohibition that we're not going to have force at the national level, but showing this kind of staunch anti-immigrant sentiment um, and basically, you know, argued that, uh, you know, the, the only way to get rid of organized crime was to get rid of prohibition. Uh, so Anton Saramac basically was one of these local figures that I think showed the incredible opposition of ethnic immigrant working class men and women to prohibition way before Al Smith came into the picture. Uh, Al Smith, of course, was a uh, prominent Irish Catholic multi-term governor of New York 
who eventually ran for president in 1928. But long before that, somebody like Anton Cermak had been mobilizing within the Democratic Party at the local level and bringing ethnic working class men and women into the Democratic Party around prohibition opposition. And that's really important because this is a moment where you see prohibition generating a new politicization of men and women who had basically, you know, not been part of, certainly not part of national politics, who increasingly come to uh, become an important part of the Democratic Party coalition in the 20s as a result of prohibition opposition. Right. I mean, part of which you get to right around 1928 and Al Smith. I mean, Al Smith is really the first Catholic to run for uh, a major, gets a major party nomination for president. And he runs strongly on an anti, you know, repeal prohibition line. He gets obliterated in 1928 in the election by Herbert Hoover, but nonetheless plays a major role in sort of shifting this coalition, right? One where you have basically where, where working class people and immigrants have sort of been divided between Democrats and Republicans, depending upon local politics, depending upon ethnicity, really begins to pull them all together. And this was also a group where, you know, wine and beer was always very much part of the culture. So it sort of made sense that you would see this emergence happening out of places like Chicago. But the other group, of course, are African-Americans, right? And what's interesting there is a little bit different because African-Americans have more of a temperance culture. They're not typically Catholic. They have more of a tradition, you know, of ministers playing a very powerful role, right? Many of them support alcohol prohibition. And then sort of alcohol prohibition kind of comes along. And lo and behold, they find just what the sort of working class whites do, that when it comes to enforcing the prohibition laws, it's not, you know, middle and upper middle class white families that are by and large getting, you know, arrested or having their houses raided or being thrown in jail. It's blacks and it's poor whites in the South and in the and in the and the urban cities. Part of what I'm curious about here is why didn't this occur or did it occur to basically leading black leaders, the Booker T. Washingtons, the others at that time in the early 20th century? Why didn't they oppose prohibition, anticipating that they would be the principal victims of its enforcement? I think it's important to look at a kind of class division, that there's a sort of politics of respectability among middle class African-Americans who really, you know, sort of believe that there is a way that limiting alcohol consumption, just like progressive white progressive reformers did for the white working class, would uplift those others, right? Poor others, poor African-Americans. But I think what, so there is kind of a way in which many of the sort of uh, elite voices within the African-American community at the early edge of prohibition are in fact supportive of prohibition. That falls apart pretty quickly when they see the repercussions. Um, And why they didn't see it before? Well, prohibition is, in a way, it's dramatically new, at least at the national level. And the the implications for Black communities are very intense. And it becomes quickly known in places like South Side of Chicago or Harlem in New York, where police would allow vice the vice districts to flourish, right? And as a result of that, mm-hmm. it's not only that poor African-Americans are being arrested, thrown in jail for violating the law at disproportionate rates. It's also that the violence that's rained down through illicit markets occurs, of course, within African-American communities, right? They're the most affected by the violence that happens uh, in uh, gang warfare, uh, in these illicit industries. Um, so bombings take place in the south side of Chicago and Harlem and other places. 
And of course, this is a place where you get slumming, right? Where their whites in other parts of the city go for their entertainment uh, and for imbibing. And so all of that, then African-American leaders quickly see the problems of prohibition. And somebody like Marcus Garvey actually had always been, who's an outlier in a way, sort of a very well-known black nationalist who uh, was was initially opposed to prohibition. It comes out really forcefully against it. But pretty soon you get a lot of leaders, uh, African-American leaders who oppose what basically they see unfolding with uh, the 18th Amendment. So now this gets us into the thick of prohibition. We're in the mid to late 20s now, right? And while you have on the one hand this disproportionate enforcement, especially against blacks and other minorities, work and then oftentimes poor whites and sometimes working class whites in other areas, you also have the prohibition culture that emerges, right? You have the Harlem Renaissance. You have the jazz culture. You have white people going to hear jazz. You have all the excitement in New York and that emanating out to the rest of the country. You have blacks and whites interacting more and more in terms on the bootlegging, right? Oftentimes blacks working for white, but more and more working together on this sort of stuff. And so there's a transformation, you know, women going, because it's not saloons anymore, but now they're going to speakeasies and there's and, and there's greater, you know, gender, not only about equality, but sort of gender mixing in places where previously that would not have been accepted for quote unquote good women to go to. And obviously what happens is the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the evangelical Protestants are freaking out. The old anti-saloon league is freaking out and they find an ally in the Ku Klux Klan, which had fallen on hard times and now sees alcohol prohibition and the potential to play a role as an enforcement arm of prohibition as their great big opportunity. So tell us a little more about that, you know, sort of ugly partnership between these three major players. Well, you know, I think it's exactly right to point out that prohibition really does, despite all of the efforts at enforcement and despite the fact that you know, prison numbers are rising. Men and women are being incarcerated selectively, right? Working class men and women, uh, you know, white ethnics, uh, African-Americans. Still, there's this huge revolutionizing of nightlife. And as you also point out, sort of this racial mixing as well as gender mixing in the new subterranean kind of world of the saloon or the, what, not the saloon, but now the kind of cocktail world of of these new drink spaces. And that generates a tremendous amount of anxiety among those men and women who had fought so hard to pass the law, right? The WCTU, the, the Anti-Saloon League. And those men and women now see that this is, prohibition is a law of the land. So they're looking for ways to enforce it, right? The WCTU comes up with a motto, work for enforcement where you are. The Anti-Saloon League also seeks to work for enforcement. Well, when the Ku Klux Klan which is, of course, a white supremacist, anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic organization, sells itself to white evangelical men and women who are already anxious about the problem, right, the scandal of the lack of law enforcement. The Klan sees an opportunity to basically use the problem of the lack of enforcement, the problem of the kind of, of bootlegging, of speakeasies, to, and argue that we will clean up, we will come in and clean up your community, right? So they instrumentalize the law to recruit men and women into their ranks quite successfully. So you see, basically, the Klan was established in 1915, but it's in 1920 that they begin to really take off. 
They do so partly because it's the wake of World War I. There's a lot of anxiety about returning African-American veterans, a kind of new militancy in the community. But they also do so because they have an opportunity with this new law of the land to sell themselves to white evangelical Protestants as a law enforcement organization. Right. So they recruit around the issue of bootlegging. We're going to come in. We're going to clean up your community. Of course, who they target in their enforcement raids is the drinking of not themselves because they're, they're not totally temperate themselves, but off the drinking of others. Right. Catholics, immigrants, African-Americans. Um, so they use prohibition. They use the 18th Amendment as a as a mechanism to basically, uh, you know, boost themselves uh, and become incredibly powerful in the 1920s. They right. All- you're leaving out a little bit here the, the role of the Jews, too. I mean, the leading anti-Semite of the day, Henry Ford, you quote his newspaper at one point saying, you know, where the, his Dearborn Independence says that 95 percent of all bootlegging is Jewish. Right. And the KKK also being anti-Semitic, although obviously the numbers of the Catholics are much, much greater. And in a way, some of this reminds me, I mean, you know, you have them getting involved in the same way that you, sort of in vigilante groups and citizen armies in the way that you had people in the Southwest in more recent decades mobilized to try to do something about illegal, you know, immigration into the United States. Or maybe there's even an analogy we'd have made more recently with the recent changes in some of these laws to allow civilian lawsuits, right, against people involved in abortion. Once again, trying to mobilize or sometimes arm sort of citizen groups that are welcomed by law enforcement authorities, even federal law enforcement authorities, because they just feel understaffed, overmanned, like, you know, they're really putting their finger in the dike of, you know, a widespread law violation. That's right. So basically, the Klan not only operates at the local level as a kind of bolt to bolster local policing, but at certain points is deputized, in fact, uh, at one point uh, by the Federal Prohibition Bureau to serve as kind of ground troops to help to clean up these communities. So in the case I look at in terms of the Citizen Enforcement Army in Southern Illinois, you have Klan members going to Washington, traveling to Washington to say, hey, we need your help cleaning up our communities as we have a wide open community in Williamson County, Illinois. And Roy Haynes at that time, 23, is the head of the Federal Prohibition Bureau says, you know what, we we don't have the manpower. We don't have the people power to do it. But if you if you will serve as as sort of foot soldiers and find the evidence, you know, we will bring in federal, uh, we, we will deputize and bring in federal prohibition bureau agents to help you. And basically, the federal government deputizes essentially folks who are members of the Klan to conduct series of raids. And those raids at first target roadhouses, target bootleg facilities, and soon it devolves into an attack essentially on the what is largely an Italian Catholic presence in uh, Heron uh, and Marion in Williamson County, Illinois, where basically Catholic churches are raided um, and immigrant homes are also raided. Uh, and it becomes really almost a form of terrorism against the community, which w- is is leveraged or utilized and, and led by the Klan, deputized by the Prohibition Bureau. This becomes such a problem for the Bureau that by uh, 1926 and 27, they're arguing we cannot utilize any citizen volunteers in our raids because they often turn so violent. Um, but you see, it's not just in Williamson County, but in other parts of the country. The Klan backs and supports local police who are overwhelmed 
to conduct raids and to try to shut down uh, drinking establishments. I mean, Lisa, I'll tell you, I mean, some of the analogies here, and obviously because your other work on the new right uh, to the contemporary day, I mean, the KKK is not just fringe then. It's electing senators. It's electing governors. It has real political power, and they're extreme. It also, you know, and, and it reminds me of what's, a little bit what's going on today where you have a really radical kind of, you know, Trumpist right-wing, you know, element that's becoming, you know, more and more powerful, it seems, in the United States. And even though they were sort of, you know, just by the edge defeated in many places in the recent election— seems to be gaining traction among a growing number of Americans, and also the history of political violence. I mean, we think about America as not having had much political violence since the assassinations of the late 60s and some of the racial violence that happened then. But when you take us back to that era of the teens and the 20s, when you had literally fights over prohibition, political fights, things like that, with people being killed, people being threatened, um, I mean, it reminds us that, you know, America, you know, does have these levels, has these history of significant sort of social, cultural, political violence. And in some respects, it oftentimes seems like we may be returning to some days like that. I mean, where you might even fear that, you know, state, you know, state police forces might begin to ally with armed civilian military groups. I don't want to get too dramatic here, but I have to say when on on bleak mornings, I sometimes wonder whether we might be returning to that period of 100 years ago. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly has echoes and rhymes from the past. So, um, you know, I think certainly in terms of the sort of paramilitary or vigilante forces that we see with Proud Boys or others, you know, they're sort of, uh, obviously it's quite reminiscent of some of the kind of paramilitary forces like the Klan. Although again, the Klan was, as you point out, which is really important, not simply a vigilante organization, right? I mean, it gained political power in in several different states um, and exercised tremendous amount of sway. Uh, in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. So I think that's you, really important to point out, too. You also make the point in the South and on the enforcement, there was obviously the targeting of black Americans, but also quite a fair bit of targeting of poor white Americans. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes, that you know, in many of these states, even though blacks were a sub- substantial minority of the population, you still had poor whites in some states being a majority of those who were getting locked up. And it reminds me a bit of what we've seen in the last 10, 15 years around the attacks on, on methamphetamine, where that's large, by and large, not a black issue especially in certain parts of the country. It's a white, poor white one. And where you see that racism is the driving force between mo- behind modern al- behind modern drug prohibition, but that class element and that element of targeting poor whites involved in illicit trade, you know, is something that, you know, the, the, the white establishment in the South and parts of the West and are, are perfectly willing to engage in. Yeah, no, I think that there are parallels there as well. It was African-Americans in New South cities, but it was also poor rural whites that ended up fined, jailed, incarcerated for long terms. I mean, it was as long as you were a marginal, really the marginal violators, right? So so those who were kind of, you know, having a back uh, sort of still, uh, but not those who could afford the levels of protection that organized crime rings required, right? So that that the problem essentially devolved on poor marginal violators black white mexican american whatever they might be those who were identified already within public discourse with kind of criminality um and i think you can see certainly parallels with today as well 
So politically back then, I mean, the Republicans are sort of the dominant party from the late 19th century until roughly the 1930s. And the Democrats keep trying to break through. Both parties are appealing to working class voters as well as to the corporations. You know, Republicans are seen more as the world as the party of corporate America. But, you know, they are also identified with Lincoln and abolition of slavery and things like that. And they're doing some stuff They're you know, they're claiming to do in terms of workers rights. But Al Smith, you point out in 1928, really begins to organize and bring to the voting booths for the first time millions of ethnic, recently immigrant, immigrant America's first and center generation Americans. In doing so, he lands up alienating, uh, not just through his anti-prohibition sentiment, but also because he's a Catholic, he lands up losing some of the kind of agrarian Democrat voters, the ones who had been more evangelical Protestant, the ones who had followed William Jennings Bryan, you know, the only, only figure in American history ever to run for president and lose three times. Uh, as head of a major national ticket. But then because of, I guess, really out the depression more than anything else, just radically changes things. And when as the election begins to approach in 1932, you have party leadership in the Democrats wary of taking on this issue. Republicans are getting wary about being so associated with support for prohibition. The Democrats wary of taking it on because they still have that Southern base. But somehow this becomes a radical swing where millions and millions of people show up, um, oftentimes motivated first and foremost by the desire to repeal alcohol prohibition. And in 32, though, FDR, who's much more reluctant about repealing prohibition, finds he essentially has no choice but to embrace it. And you see basically a fundamental realignment happening and hardening in American politics um, that, you know, changes the composition of Republican and Democratic parties. So, Lisa, just tell us more about that moment, what happened between 28 and 32 and with labor and others. Well, I mean, it's, it is interesting at, at the Democratic Party convention because FDR was a reluctant anti-prohibitionist. He didn't want really prohibition to be part of, you know, at the core issue. But ethnic white working class men and women who had really joined the Democratic Party already by 28 with Al Smith uh, at the at the front of a repeal platform pressed the issue in 32 and basically, Roosevelt, in order to get the nomination, had to agree to repeal being a central issue for the Democratic Party. So it was that group of ethnic working class men and women, these urban dwellers who were absolutely opposed to prohibition because they saw it as an affront to their culture. They were, uh, you know, sort of angered by the extent to which they were the ones that were, they felt were suffering under the law. Um, they saw it really as an attack on their communities, and they mobilized, and they came into politics and into the Democratic Party in 28, and again in 32. So you see 28 is a moment, really, of realignment. It's the moment where these white working class men and women who had been divided between the Republican and Democratic parties move in to the Democratic Party in the big cities. And Roosevelt consolidates that in 32 because of basically two issues. One is the Great Depression. So these people are suffering from massive unemployment. Labor is basically arguing that they, something needs to be done for the working classes. But Roosevelt's not yet embracing the New Deal. So what can he do? He can declare for repeal and open up an industry without increasing federal spending. He can attack the Republicans for their extravagant spending on prohibition. So repeal becomes a very important plank 
in a couple of ways. One is because it draws in those white working class men and women. But the second one, it satisfies some concerns of labor without going so far as to increase government spending, which Roosevelt will then do after he's elected. But it's not yet a central part of his platform. So there's a kind of transitional moment there. Repeal plays an important role in kind of consolidating that early New Deal coalition. Once those men and women are part of that coalition, Roosevelt increasingly answers some of their other concerns, uh, and we get really the, the coming of the New Deal. Yeah, I think you write that at the 32 convention, the issue of repeal prohibition comes up and the party leaders are still hesitant, but it gets a standing ovation for like half an hour. It's like the number one issue, you know, motivating the Democratic faithful at that point. I mean, you have the depression going on all this, but somehow repeal national prohibition is the one that gets the most sustained applause of everything. It get, it, It's an incredibly significant issue, and I think it's really been neglected at that moment. It's also really important. Hoover's in big trouble because of the Great Depression, but he's also in big trouble because the Republican Party straddles the issue of repeal. They have basically a very muddled platform. That's trying to satisfy both wings of the party. Those who are increasingly seeing, hey, you know what? We're in a Great Depression. We can't afford to spend money on, on enforcing prohibition. But the other wing of the party, these white evangelicals who are really pushing for prohibition still, and Hoover, who is himself is a big backer of prohibition, he really sort of those who leave that convention argue that basically the party is going to lose, if not on the depression, definitely on the issue of repeal. And repeal is big enough uh, that the party is in big trouble. So the Democrats really do consolidate their support and the Republicans waffle. And that matters. The Great Depression matters a good deal as well. One cannot forget that, of course. But the neglect, I think, of prohibition issue is something that, you know, my book really tries to remedy to look at its significance at that critical moment. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's another point you make in here, which is that the 20s becomes maybe the first decade in American history where Americans become obsessed with crime, right? It's not just all the prohibitionist violence and the Al Capone and all that, but it's labor strikes, race riots, anarchist bombings, automobile accidents, you know, bank robberies, thefts, all of this sort of stuff. And governments at the federal and state level respond to it, not unlike they did under Nixon and even more so under Reagan and Bush in the 80s and 90s with draconian legislation. So you have, on the one hand, both the working class people and others getting even more beaten up. Even as support for prohibition is declining, they're getting more beaten up by tougher laws, tougher enforcement, last gasp efforts. And at the other thing, which is a major focus of your book, is it really it's really about the growing empowerment of the federal state and the punitive state and the and the federal criminal justice bureaucracy. So explain more about what was going on with all that. Well, I mean, prior to prohibition, the federal government had a relatively tiny role in crime control. It was really a local issue. It was a state issue. But in the 1920s, it really becomes an issue of national concern. And the federal government takes on a new responsibility for crime control that it has yet to relinquish. So it's really basically federal officials leverage the kind of deep-seated concerns and over crime, this sort of discourse of, you know, the sort of rise and wave of criminality that happens partly because there is a whole new class of crimes <laughs> as a result of prohibition, because there are more arrests and there are more prosecutions and there is this increasing crackdown. And as you mentioned, draconian legislation. So there's a whole set of concerns. And as a result, the federal government basically leverages those concerns to increase the bureaucracy to gain increased knowledge of crime and crime control to systematize, for example, federal crime statistics. This is the moment of the birth of the Uniform Crime Reports. It's the moment of a new consolidation of power coming out of national prohibition in 32 and 34 with the Bureau of Investigation, which becomes the Federal Bureau of Investigation, increases its purview and muscle. It's the moment when the Bureau of Prisons is elevated to, the Fed, uh, to a, the, become the Federal Bureau of Prisons and prisons are expanded and systematized and reformed at the federal level to, to reduce overcrowding. Uh, it's a it's a whole moment of a kind of consolidation and building of the federal what I call the federal 
penal state. And this is something which, of course, also links up to the issue that you're really concerned about around drugs, because it's also the moment of consolidation out of the Prohibition Bureau of a, of a new independent Bureau of Narcotics, right? 1930. Uh, and then, yep. In 1930, when the, the federal government you know, gets its first national drug czar with Harry Anslinger. Um, and out of that uh, comes a whole new host of legislation in the 30s and, of course, the uh, Marijuana Tax Act and the criminalization of marijuana at the federal level. All of this kind of merges out of essentially this way that the federal government leveraged this host of concerns around crime and crime control, as well as the kind of demise, increasing demise of alcohol prohibition, turning it, turning its muscle in a new direction toward this growing and far longer lasting war on drugs. Yeah, Lisa, when I think about the comparison to the modern day drug war, I mean, you point out that probably proportionally the growth in the prison population and certainly the federal prison population between 19, the early 20s and the mid 30s was probably a proportional growth comparable to what happened with the modern day war on crime and drugs, where we went from a half million people behind bars to, you know, 2.2 million people behind bars. Now, of course, the percent of the population incarcerated back then was much smaller than it was in the modern day drug war, right? But you also make the point that something like 30% of all the people in federal prison, plus an additional, are there for alcohol prohibition violations by the time prohibition is ending, and another 20% for narcotics violations. So, you know, you, you think about the modern day, you know, yeah, I think about the federal prisons with a drug war. You know, we start off as the drug wars, you know, gaining speed in the late 80s, early 90s. It's roughly two thirds of the federal prison population of the 100,000 people are there for drug law violations. You get up to today when it's half of over 200,000 people behind bars on drug law violations. So really, the I mean, the focus on crime is there. But as you point out, the Bureau of Prohibition Enforcement is dramatically bigger than J. Edgar Hoover's new FBI. The FBI doesn't even come close to competing with it in size until probably World War II starts and FBI gets involved in counterintelligence. So that, that war on alcohol and then drugs really does drive the growth of a federal crime control establishment establishment really more than anything in American history. Yeah, at this moment, I mean, it's really the birth of a fundamentally changed role for the federal government crime control and the sort of building of the initial edifice, let's say, of the federal penal state, which will enable that later and larger and longer lasting war on drugs. So in some ways, the way I look at prohibition, alcohol prohibition, is to see it as a kind of dress rehearsal for the later, uh, again, larger and, and far more, let's say, quote unquote, successful, at least in terms of it's the way it has lasted uh, than alcohol prohibition. Um, so but they these absolutely. I mean, I think that this is these are the legacies and consequences that come out of alcohol prohibition that have largely been neglected. And I think really by looking at that history, it really helps us much better understand our current moment. Because you really see how, so not not just the parallels, but the way the one led to the other, and also the problem of once you have that edifice established, it's very difficult to go back to ground zero, right? So federal prohibition increased, showed the muscle and power of the federal government. And we got rid of alcohol prohibition, but that muscle moved forward in different directions. But the federal government didn't just go back to where it was in 1919, by far not. 
right? It grew and expanded in new directions in the wake of alcohol prohibition. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of the repeal of prohibition was driven by working class people, poorer people and their allies, and increasingly by middle class people who were, you know, beginning to violate prohibition and just wanted the freedom to drink and that didn't have to want to be criminalized and live in fear, even though they were much less likely to be attacked by the police than anybody else. But you point out that among the wealthy business people who had traditionally aligned with the Republican Party, right, some of them you know, begin increasingly aligned with the Democratic Party, they see prohibition as a threat. And for them, they hate all these things that everybody else hates about alcohol prohibition. But they're also wary about the way in which it's creating the big state. You focus on John Raskob, right, a, a wealthy businessman who becomes the chair of the Democratic Party, I think, in 1932, 28 or 32. And it sounds like that's their major fear. And ultimately, you know, they get pushed aside. Yes. So this is really, I think it's quite fascinating that the, many of the opponents of alcohol prohibition at the elite level are conservative men and women who believe that this is going to crack a kind of door open to providing new authority for the government to regulate all sorts of other things, not just alcohol prohibition. So that's their big concern, an overreaching federal government that could potentially regulate the economy. Well, it turns out, in fact, they were right because it did crack that door open. And while there was a great deal of hostility among those ethnic working class men and women toward prohibition, they saw that the Fed, that federal power was being misused, but they could they could turn it and hopefully use that same power in a different direction. That's precisely what they did. So essentially, those within the Democratic Party made the argument, these men and women, that, hey, look, you know, we have been able, we passed the 18th Amendment, the federal government did all of this. You're going to tell me that we can't pass a 30 hour a week bill. I mean, there's sort of a ways in which they saw we now have that power. We don't want it to regulate our private lives. We want to have be able to imbibe and to drink and have our leisure. But we want to use that power and turn it in a different direction. And that is precisely what happened with the New Deal. So those those years, that whole decade of that debate over the scope of federal power. It made the federal government visible in people's lives in a fundamentally new way. And as a result, I think that it contributed to the, seeing the possibilities, right? There's so sort of problems, but also the possibilities of utilizing the federal government to uh, regulate the economy. So those folks uh, at the elite level, like John Raskob and others, what happened once repeal happened Alcohol prohibition didn't just return to localities, right? First, the idea was to regulate it, to use the federal government to regulate it through the National Recovery Act. And at that moment, these conservatives established the Liberty League because they're so threatened by this idea that the federal, federal government is going to control uh, the regulation of alcohol. And it's only when the Supreme Court declares the NRA illegal or unconstitutional that then you have the reversal of control of alcohol at the state level. But it's nowhere what it was before alcohol prohibition, because it's really systematized at the state level. And there's far more kind of uh, sort of across the board forms of state regulation of alcohol control that had not really existed in the same way prior to prohibition. Mm hmm. You know, you, um, uh, you essentially FDR kind of pulls a fast one on the businessmen who support him. 
right? I mean, he's such a master at telling people what they want to hear, but ultimately he sides with those who are the little guy in this stuff, right? And the Raskobs of the world and the other ones, you know, CFDR build the big state in a way that America had never had before with the exception of wartime. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, FDR is, I mean, he's just a fascinating figure, of course. And, and he, he was an experimenter, an adopter. And he, you know, he came on board to repeal when he needed to, to get that nomination. Um, mm-hmm. And then when he had those ethnic men and women in the Democratic Party coalition, he listened to those voices. You know, he was willing to expand the size of the state, and the scope of the state to provide some fundamental elements of security for those especially white working class uh, men and women. Yeah. And you talk about the ways in which uh, working class folks, uh, African-American leaders, NAACP, uh, Clarence Darrow, the famous kind of civil liberties lawyer in early 20th century America, you know, they're basically saying to the federal government, well, if you could put all these resources behind trying to enforce futilely the 18th Amendment, why can't you do the same with the Fourth Amendment and the 14th Amendment and the ones that would benefit us little guys? Right, exactly. Right. So again, there's the way in which that expansion of power opens the door for all of these hosts of other questions of ways in which the federal government should essentially back uh, rights that it had not been earlier. Yeah. So also, Lisa, the Wickersham Commission, I mean, Hoover feels obliged in the face of this crime wave and discontent with prohibition to appoint this Wickersham Commission in early 1929 when he becomes president. Um, But it kind of blows up in his face, not unlike the way the Schaefer Commission blows up in Nixon's face um, on the drug issue uh, 40 years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it certainly did blow up in his face in the sense that, uh, you know, he had hopes to appoint a commission which would show that there were all sorts of problems with law enforcement. But for Hoover, he had really wanted to improve enforcement. That was he knew there were all sorts of problems, but his hope was better enforcement will result in the success of the law. Let's give it time. Let's give it a chance. Like many progressives, including Jane Adams, who back to Hoover in 28, precisely because he was in favor of prohibition. But, you know, he appoints all sorts of really very prominent uh, legal figures uh, and academics to this commission. It's a very large scale study, um, which points out not just the problems of prohibition, but many, many different aspects of the problems of the criminal justice system more broadly that Hoover was really uh, not expecting. And it was a really disappointing him. It was a really disappointing commission. They come out and basically argue that prohibition is pretty much unenforceable. They, you know, they give it, because it's within his purview of his administration, they say, let's give it some chance. But if it doesn't work out, we should repeal this. And he is totally opposed to this. Um, and basically, you know, that's another, that's sort of is another kind of nail in the coffin uh, that 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 helps to seal partially the fate of prohibition because the recommendations are fully contradictory with a little report that Hoover puts out about the commission. It becomes a disastrous kind of uh, public relations, uh, uh, you know, campaign for the administration and for prohibition as well. Um, and so this, you know, this moment between twenty nine and thirty two is really significant for eroding the support for 
uh, prohibition across the board. Yeah. And I mean, all the Wickersham Commission, right, they do come under pressure from Hoover and others not to outright come out for repeal, right? So they sort of right. pull their punches on it. In fact, yes. I came across a funny little ditty that was written by Franklin Adams in the New York World, where he summed up, summed up the Wickersham's commissions about prohibition. And it goes like this. Prohibition is an awful flop. We like it. It can't stop yeah. when it's meant to stop. We like it. It's left a trail of graft and slime. It don't prohibit worth a dime. It's filled our land with vice and crime. Nevertheless, we're for it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, but I guess it, it just reflected the politics of the moment, you know? Exactly. Well, so, yeah. Lisa, I'll tell you something. I mean, I'll tell you, there's one other, I mean, obviously the connections, and I this is just, just sharing with you my and the audience, my own sort of personal, um, you know, uh, engagement in all this, is that as I was... Um, you know, finishing my PhD at Harvard on international drug control and starting to teach at Princeton, just as the drug war was heating up, and I began speaking out. And for me, the prohibition analogy was central. It was something that I used as a way to relate to audiences when people were, you know, entirely seized by the craziness of the war on drugs, and using that as the fundamental, um, you know, framework. Now we didn't have an Eighteenth Amendment to mobilize against, right? But in fact. That was the key analogy, and it was one that, you know, continued to resonate with people. I mean, we had to jump over the hoop where people would say alcohol is different, alcohol is different, narcotics are fundamentally different. But in that case, we could use marijuana as an example of something that was actually less dangerous than alcohol. And in that case, in fact, that model of repealing alcohol prohibition was the one that played out very powerfully for us in the movement that we built to at least repeal marijuana prohibition and to begin to roll back other aspects of the drug war. Well, and I, th I think it's, it's a really, um, it's, it's different, and yet there are so many similarities and parallels. And in terms of you're right. I mean, certainly with marijuana, um, I think the campaign has obviously been, it took a long time, but it has been somewhat successful, although clearly still not at the, at the federal level, uh, at least in terms of, yes, we've got Joe Biden pardoning, but not in terms of, you know, sort of uh, decriminalizing. Um, but yeah, you know, but, but Lisa, I'll time, tell you, though, on marijuana, though, the notion just 20 years ago that, you know, there were some quotes. You had one quote. I had, I've seen a quote by Morris Shepard, the pro-prohibition center from Texas, who said in 1930 that the chances of the 18th Amendment being repealed were about the same as a humming boon, you know, you know, flying to the moon, you know, with a skyscraper on its back and three years later in fallen. So now we tend to say, oh, ho-hum, well, we haven't quite legalized it nationally. But in fact, the notion of repealing marijuana prohibition was regarded as absolutely quixotic and almost absurd, really, until about 12 years ago. So it was a really very, it wasn't quite the rapidity with which the 21st Amendment was passed. I mean, that happened so quickly in those last years, but it actually did happen very, very quickly and through building together coalitions as well. Mm -hmm. No, it's an excellent point. Um, but that was successful for so many years, and it's coming apart at the seams because so many of these countries that are deeply affected uh, by, you know, the sort of war on drugs are are really speaking out forcefully. Um, and that also is, you know, sort of part of a important transnational coalition building uh, to dismantle the that war on drugs as well. 
Yeah. I mean, the U.S. did try. In fact, it was part of Han- Harry Anslinger's job in the late 20s as head of the Foreign Control Section of the Bureau of Prohibition to try to create some sort of nascent international arrangement. And he was successful in getting treaties with about a dozen countries, in the mostly in the Western Hemisphere, the Caribbean and elsewhere. But ultimately, it was a futile, failed effort. But obviously, he was a lot more successful in playing a key leading role in building the global drug prohibition regime between 1930 and when he finally left office in the early 1960s. Right. Well, listen, Lisa, I've loved this conversation with you. I loved your book. For our listeners, Lisa McGurr, Harvard historian, the book The War on Alcohol. If you want the one go-to book to read about alcohol prohibition, that's the one to get. So, Lisa, thank you so much for taking this time to speak with me and my listeners, and uh, best of luck on your future endeavors. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure and a great conversation. Take care, Ethan. Thanks again. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Avivik Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, we'll be bringing you a bonus episode. It's me being interviewed by my friend Giancarlo Canavesio about my own psychedelic experiences. It's for his podcast on Mango TV in a series called Psychedelic Confessions. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. 
Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 